Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Kelly Jones, the author of South of Pico, African-American Artists in Los Angeles in the 1960s and 1970s. It's new from Duke University Press. Amazon has it for $22. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. This is Jones's second major project about art in Los Angeles during the 1960s and 70s. Jones also curated Now Dig This, Art in Black Los Angeles, 1960 to 1980, for the Hammer Museum in 2011. She went on to win a 2016 MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant and teaches art history at Columbia University. Among the artists featured in Jones's book who have been on the Man podcast in recent years are Melvin Edwards and Betty Saar. In addition, curator and historian Yale Lipschitz, who co-curated LACMA's 2015 Noah Purifoy retrospective, was on the show that year. We'll have links to all of that on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Shimon Addy discusses two new works that are on view at the St. Louis Art Museum, The Crossing and Lost in Space After Huck. They're up through June 25th. But first, Kelly Jones, after a break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents the final weeks of Adios Utopia, Dreams and Deceptions in Cuban Art Since 1950, a historic look at how Cuba's revolutionary aspirations shaped 65 years of Cuban art. The exhibition features over 100 of the most important works of painting, graphic design, photography, and more from Cuban artists and designers. On view through May 21st at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org adios for more. Join us at the Getty to explore the visual, verbal, and sonic experiments of the concrete poetry movement in the exhibition Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space. Using visual patterns of words or letters and other typographical devices, the shape of these poems convey as much or more than the words themselves. With works from contemporary poets and artists such as Augusto de Campos and Ian Hamilton Finlay, Concrete Poetry, Words and Sounds in Graphic Space is on view now through July 30th. Visit getty.edu to plan your visit. And we're back. Kelly Jones, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Fantastic. So glad to be here. What about the place and time of Los Angeles in the 1960s and 70s intrigued you enough to devote a decade or so of your life to a book and a show? The show being, of course, Now Dig This. I think it's because people ask me this, and I think it's because I'm a New Yorker. What people usually ask me is, you spend all this time writing about L.A. and doing producing a show, are you from Los Angeles? And I said, no, I'm from New York. That's why, <laughs> because it's such a different place, and that's one answer, and that's real. You know, I, I've been very intrigued by it because it is a major city on the West Coast. Uh, you know, the the rival, you have uh, Sao Paulo and Rio, you have New York and L.A. I mean, it's pretty simple. Also, I think it's because I met, when I first graduated from college and started working as a curator, some of the first artists I met were people that I later found were from L.A., but I was very intrigued by their work. David Hammonds, Marin Hassinger, Sangin and Goody. I'd known Melvin Edwards for years. It was only later that I start when I started doing, you know, writing more extensively on these artists. And maybe when I think probably first when I interviewed David Hammonds for the interview that was published in nineteen eighty six in Real Life magazine, when he's talking about all these California people And I had never heard of them. Noah Purifoy, John Riddle. And I thought, hmm, 
you know, it kept coming up. And, and so I started looking into it. It was just vast. It was interesting. And, and the other part about it is that their multimedia practice and, and abstraction during this period, 60s and 70s, was more effortless. You know, if you, you think of radical art among African Americans in the 60s and 70s, everybody's going to throw up a fist and say, yeah, this is, this is what it was. And even though somebody like David Hammonds did do body prints that did have that kind of figurative cast and did have that kind of radical graphic feel of figuration with revolution, which kind of goes towards the agitprop, they eventually moved on from that, but but still retaining the interest in African-American history and African-American equity but joining it with something else. So I, I liked that about California. You opened the book with three artists, Charles White, Betty Saar, and Melvin Edwards. They certainly weren't the only prominent African-American artists in L.A. in the period. There's David Hammonds and John Atterbridge and Noah Purifoy, and we'll talk about some of them, and I could keep going, of course. But why did you choose to start with those three? I think because they really were the first ones to get recognition. That's that's why I started with Charles White and Melvin Edwards and Betty Sarr. Particularly, Charles White had already been, of all the artists, he had been the most well-known earlier and in New York and in Chicago and as part of the mural movement in the 30s and 40s. He, he was well-known. He was part of the WPA. He leaves New York in 1956 and arrives in L.A., and he doesn't get picked up by any gallery until 1964, when Heritage Gallery picks him up. And so that was also intriguing to me. You know, why, first of all, why would somebody leave New York? Well, he left because of health reasons, but but then he struggles, really, in, in a way, what we would see as struggle, to find if we think he leaves, basically, gallery representation in New York to come to California. He's still showing in New York, but he's really working in a place where he has no representation. But for him, you know, art was so much larger than that. I mean, it was it was more important to be an activist. For him, part of his art was really, truly about activism and being involved with high school art shows, being in, involved with small galleries, being involved with one-day shows at universities and churches and for causes that were political, that were about black equity and so on. So he's intriguing because, you know, he's so important that one of the African-American newspapers, the Los Angeles Sentinel, even announces his arrival in its pages in 1956. He arrived on such and such train, the Sunset Limited or whatever it was. I mean, that's pretty impressive. So I was intrigued by that. He's also somebody who's one of the, I think he may be the, one of the only artists or certainly one of the very few who has a, a park named after him in his hometown of Altadena. So there are many things that interested me about White and also the fact that he was the teacher of many people like David Hammonds, Suzanne Jackson, Dan Conchalar, Alonzo Davis. Kerry James Marshall. So that was also intriguing. And then Melvin Edwards, because the book is also about African-American migration and how we can see ideas about 
the great migration of African Americans in the 20th century in the work, both in the stories that these works tell, but also in their materiality. Melvin Edwards is a person who does the classic migration. He moves from Texas to Los Angeles and, you know, first starts out living with family and, you know, eventually in L.A. becomes quite a big art star in his 20s. He has solo shows in Santa Barbara. He has gallery representation there. He has, he's part of the new Los Angeles County Museum of Art when it opens on Wilshire. He's, you know, one of the young contemporary artists that gets a grant and gets, you know, he starts getting a lot of press for African Americans. This is something new in, in some ways in the mainstream. And he also, his works appear on a TV show at least once in LA. So he's really an art star of his time. And then, you know, he comes to New York and, and things are different. But I was excited that he's really one of the first big arts, what we would call a big art star now. And then, of course, Betty Saar, you know, starting out as a woman, a mother, trained as an artist, an interior designer, does prints, and kind of scores big with prints and then moves on to an assemblage practice. But with Sarah, I'm really interested in, you know, how women negotiate all this, you know, and this is why she appears in two chapters, because I want to put her at the beginning where she is, you know, selling a lot of prints early on, but also how she negotiated that, how she you know, moves on to a really a larger sculptural practice when her children are older, at a later age, which is true even still today for women artists, I think, for the most part, that they, you know, have a lot of more accolades later than their male counterparts. So it was great to, to start with those three. We can see the influence of of white Melvin Edwards and even Betty Saar, all of those three on somebody like David Hammonds. But I think they also influenced this whole cohort of artists in that period as well. Yeah, all three of them, their influence runs through throughout the book, through through every chapter. The other, the, the one other connection you made around Betty Saar that I thought was was interesting, and useful, and and undermade by others is is that she was making work around what we would now call feminist themes a decade before feminism happens, that she was, you know, a decade ahead of, of just about almost everybody else. At a number of places in the book, you note how important the ties between artists and Black Hollywood were. And fans of old TV shows will recognize lots of, of the names you drop in the book, such as Ivan Dixon from Hogan's Heroes, and who went on to direct episodes of The Cosby Show and The Waltons and Magnum P.I. and, and, and so on. Or, of course, uh, a film actor like Sidney Poitier. How did the Hollywood artists' links come about, and was it through any one particular artist? I think it's through, you know, a number of artists. Certainly Poitier's shadow, if you will, in Hollywood was pretty large at that time. And so, you know, certainly so many films from him, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, For Love of Ivy, are important vehicles for Charles White's work. But then, you know, he meets Ivan Dixon and is, is very close to him and his family. And then you have somebody like Harry Belafonte, who's also, to some degree, a film star. But particularly Belafonte and 
Poitier, he had actually met in New York when they were doing theater. He, he meaning Charles White. Yes, I'm sorry. Charles White had met Poitier and, and Belafonte in New York when he was there. And basically through more through stage acting, the, the theater circuit that he had actually, that Charles White had actually been a part of in Chicago, at least not as an actor, but knowing directors and so on. And, you know, the kind of radical presence or the the activist artists uh, who were also his collectors. So somebody like Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee, Lorraine Hansberry, these are all people who collect Charles White's work. So certainly through Charles White, you, you get this connection. But then, you know, there are other, it comes up again and again. I just mentioned Melvin Edwards showing on a TV show, and then you have uh, Suzanne Jackson in the film Looking for Mr. Goodbar, kind of a feminist cautionary tale in 1977. So it's really interesting how that, you know, Hollywood also, you know, bankrolls these artists, collects these artists. And you can say the same for the Ferris crowd if you compare it. So, you know, Dennis Hopper is buying a lot of this work on the other side. So it was really fascinating to learn about those connections and and not surprising though in once you kind of get into it. Charles White keeps coming up. He he kind of looms over the book or hovers over the book like a kind of a father figure or a godfather figure. As an artist, he sticks to the figure at a time in American art when representation was either unpopular or had to be ironic, such as in a lot of pop art. And American art historians tend to think of avant-garde in terms of formal developments rather than in terms of content or subject matter. What kinds of subjects and themes was White addressing in his work? And were they, and was he selecting subjects and themes that were, you know, on the content avant-garde, if you will? Well, I, I would say Charles White becomes more visible because of pop. You know, if we think about the 50s, late 40s, you know, abstract expressionism ruling. And so people like White, people, others, even someone like a Betty Saar, anybody, you know, doing figuration or, you know, showing the body and showing any kind of figure, any kind of representation is is looked at as kind of not reactionary, but, but certainly not avant-garde, right? So... Pop really allows us to go back to the figure, go back to representation, go back to the body, in which case, or at which time, White's work becomes more visible. I think the content of his work has always been radical in that way, you know, because like artists of his generation, Catlett, that is Elizabeth Catlett, his former wife, Jacob Lawrence, these people were really obsessed with history, with black history. And they continue to be. And that's not something that you would really think about in art. Maybe, you know, as protest came up in the 60s more, I mean, we know protest had been happening from the 50s on and even before, of course. But I think it became more wide ranging to see black protest figures not done by African-Americans in the 60s. So in that way, we can see Charles White as leading the way, you know, the ability to to show black radical bodies that White really specialized in. Often looking right out at the viewer, sometimes standing in front of or surrounded by provocative language or imagery such as a Confederate flag. I mean, it just it, I, I can't think of a ton of examples of 
of, of directness and confrontation in black visual American art as direct as his in, in the 60s. I mean, Betty Saar eventually takes it on, but she's using the stereotype. And I don't even want to use the word, but she uses the stereotype. He doesn't. He's really against that idea. But you have these kind of confrontational figures using the stereotype being used by Betty Saar as well as as others, Joe Overstreet, his new Jemima, you know, people begin to use that. But but certainly Betty Saar is the one who uses it the most, and particularly when it comes to her assemblage work. There's a great piece on view right now here in New York in the We Wanted a Revolution exhibition, Black Radical Women, 1965 to 1985 at the Brooklyn Museum, curated by Catherine Morris and Rujeko Hockley. In it, they have a piece that I'd never seen in person. I was so glad to see it. It's part of Betty Starr's Aunt Jemima series, and it's Aunt Jemima cocktail, where she makes a Molotov cocktail out of a bottle, you know, a fake one. But it's it was amazing, you know, to, to, to see this finally. So talk about provocative. That was pretty provocative for its time as well. And also because of its three-dimensional nature, its idea that it is, again, I think she's working in assemblage, but I think also the kind of dialogue between assemblages and pop is real because she's using an actual quote-unquote object. If we want to think of how Andy Warhol makes his Brillo boxes as these kind of things in, who, that live in our world. You know, she's also using this format. One of the things that almost every artist in the book does is makes a real point to engage and be involved in communities outside the art world of, of, of the time. And you point to Charles White as being really key in this. You wrote, quote, In White, we can also trace the flow of radical art from the East Coast in a popular front context to the post-war West. Could you sketch that out a little bit as a way of beginning our conversation about how artists after White did that? I think the whole idea of popular front aesthetics, if we think about it in the 30s and 40s, has to do with kind of Americanizing ideas of communism and what that philosophy and, and type of political activity have to offer. So it's, it's more about Americanizing it. And in that, you have many artists who are involved in, in what for them is, is radical politics in the form of being affiliated or not with CPUSA. CPUSA being the Communist Party of the Communist United Party States. USA, yes. So Charles White is certainly one of those artists. And part of that in Americanizing what was kind of uh, Russian communism, if you will, or Soviet communism, is a focus on history, focus on American history. For African-Americans, Communist Party and other radicals and progressives in the 30s and 40s were, were some of the people that most helped with certain types of cases, Scottsboro and others, in shedding light on these egregious kind of Jim Crow era political events and things that need to change. And also, you know, being supportive of artists who were documenting African-American history. So that's where the history piece comes in for these artists. They become, you know, involved with showing 
Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, people who are freedom fighters a century earlier. For artists, it's about highlighting these figures, but it's also about talking about radical politics and the radical change that needs to happen in the United States. Remember, we're still under segregation. 1954 hasn't happened. Brown versus Board of Education, which outlaws legal segregation. From 1896, we're still with under Plessy versus Ferguson, which says separate but equal, like that separate facilities are still equal, which was totally untrue. Because if you see what you know, the kind of schools that were built and how people were educated and the kind of secondhand books that people were given. It's anything but equal. Progressive politics, communist politics, socialist politics is a way for people to fight against, you know, how American democracy is is still insisting on African-Americans as a servant class, even though People fight in World War One. they fight in World War II for democracy, and they come back and they're still living in a segregated world. So after 1954, you know, these artists like White, others who appear tangentially in the book, Elizabeth Catlett, Jacob Lawrence, they, you know, propagate these ideas further into, you know, into the next generation. And, and certainly Charles White was really, I think, in the United States, one of the main artists who remained in this country because Elizabeth Catlett goes to Mexico, who, who took these ideas and brought them into the 60s, where he found a whole bunch of young people who were getting ready to start up pushing against these things anew, the remnants of it, the things that still hadn't changed. So these ideas were really available to them and and really struck a nerve with all these people and and also at the time translated for a whole other generation not just artists into ideas of black nationalism cultural nationalism and activism by people such as you know the black panthers and others and and you also have to remember you know the big angela davis fight for angela davis's freedom for years and how many people nationally and internationally fought for that. But she's one of the best known, at that time, best known communists, black communists in the country. She's a communist at that time. So she's actually inherits that whole popular front ethos as well. She's kind of raised in that time period. So Charles White brings these ideas into the 60s and to artists in California. And basically he's, you know, Again, we can see it. 1956, Montgomery bus boycott. Charles White leaves the East Coast and comes to the West Coast. And he's he's literally bringing these ideas with him. And that kind of idea of organizing the role of art, what is the role of art? He's bringing these ideas with him to the West Coast in a, a major way. And as you, you pointed out, he really casts a long shadow over this era and over African-American artists, not only because of the politics, because, but again, because he is really the most well-known African-American artist up till that moment. Romare Bearden, who we would say now is one of the most well-known, he really hits his stride in 1964 uh, with his collage work, not before that. Jacob Lawrence is the only other person who's really, as an African-American, is probably the most well-known African-American artist up to that time. So, 
you know, Charles White really has a lot of influence because of his stature in the field and, and the work that he's done as well. My guest is Kelly Jones. We'll be right back after a break. On view now, SF MoMA presents Matisse Diebenkorn, a story of artistic inspiration. Over the course of four decades, California painter Richard Diebenkorn was deeply influenced by Henri Matisse while forging a style entirely his own. The exhibition reveals how much the two painters share in their use of lush, vibrant, joyful color, attentiveness to structure and composition, choice of subject matter, and the richly layered surfaces of their canvases. See their art side by side for the first time and encounter a surprising new view of two of the 20th century's most extraordinary painters. Matisse Diebenkorn is on view through May 29th at SF MoMA. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Jimmy Durham at the Center of the World. Durham's first North American retrospective, this unprecedented exhibition of nearly 200 works by the artist and activist is on view from January 29th through May 7th. See the Hammer Museum's newly renovated galleries filled with Durham's sculptures, video work, and installations most never shown in Los Angeles. Also on view this season, the first in-depth museum exhibition dedicated to the drawings of Jean de Buffet, a selection of works by Liz Craft from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, and Hammer Projects featuring work by Simon Denny and Kevin Beasley. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum. Free admission and free for good. And now back to my conversation with Kelly Jones. There is a great picture in your book of David Driscoll, uh, the art historian, Alonzo Davis, who, as we were just talking about, was one of the two co-founders of Brockman Gallery, and Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley at the opening of a 1976 exhibition. What was the show, and what does that picture suggest about a certain nexus, if you will, that had emerged in Los Angeles by, by the mid to late 1970s? Well, the show is Two Centuries of Black American Art, curated by David Driscoll. It opens in 1976. It's a it's LACMA's bicentennial show, which I find fascinating, because of course the bicentennial is a big thing. Here's you know America, United States. You know, hey, we've been a country for 200 years. Our little pipsqueak upstart country here, you know, 200 years compared to some of these other places of the world. You know, yay, we're going to celebrate. And LACMA decides to celebrate African-American artists for the you know bicentennial, which is a big deal. And it becomes very controversial because some curators and or some folks on the staff of the museum quit. The American art curator is one of the people who quits. And the director of education quits. Because they do not want to be part of having a quote-unquote black show or a show of African-American artists represent LACMA for this very important bicentennial moment. So they quit. Even somebody like Maurice Tuckman, you know, the important brains behind making LACMA this important contemporary art museum, doesn't attend Driscoll's presentation, right? He's protesting. So it's already highly charged from the beginning. You know, Driscoll does a a show that goes back to, I 
believe it's the 19th century, it could be earlier. Uh, I have to look at the book again. But he, you know, it ends in 1950, and some people are critical because, you know, it's not in the dealing with the contemporary moment. But nonetheless, he, he does this, this show, basically covers two centuries, right? That's the Nymus show. And he includes John James Audubon in it as somebody who's of African descent. And then, you know, here's our famous painter of American flora and fauna, Driscoll's including him because he has African ancestry. And then the Audubon family just goes nuts because they don't want to be associated with that. And then, you know, it comes out later that they actually did know this. If, if I could if I could fill that in just for a quick moment, Audubon was born in Haiti, and it was Driscoll's own research that had found that Audubon was of African descent. Yes. Something about that picture, especially Tom Bradley's really terrific either suit jacket or sport coat, suggests that black artists in LA, and a black art historian, of course, had arrived at a certain nexus of power. Yeah, I think this is what LACMA does really well. And what I think the West Coast did really well, as opposed to the East Coast, you know, we know about the protests at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, at MoMA. And part of that is about representation, about having people who know African-American artists and and African-American art traditions be at the helm of making these shows. And, And on the East Coast, that doesn't happen. They do these shows, they're problematic. In LACMA, they do four shows at this moment, and the majority of them are done by curators who are black and curators who know this material, including Driscoll. Of course, you know, when that show opens, Two Centuries of Black American Art, at LACMA in 1976, Tom Bradley is the mayor. He's the first black mayor of the city, and I, and I love that confluence. I love the fact that he designates the opening day of the museum as two centuries of Black American Art Day in the city at that time. So there definitely is a confluence of of power, you know, the coming into one's own where you have Alonzo Davis, David Driscoll, and Tom Bradley in the picture. Absolutely. A lot of that activist energy leads to or, or helps artists become involved with and create sites such as the Watts Towers Art Center or the Compton Community Center. What role did community building or social engagement through others' art makings, such as through the community centers, what role did those play both for the artists and and for greater Los Angeles, if you will? Well, these become sites, we have to recall also, you know, people weren't showing works by African-American artists. I mean, that's not just in California. (laughs) That's just... In the country, I mean, once in a while, you know, in the early 40s, you have a flurry of shows, Baltimore Museum of Art, Newark Museum, Downtown Gallery, but there's nothing consistent. There's no consistent spaces. And so people have been for years calling for, you know, institutional voices. On the other hand, to be integrated into the American art scene, be integrated into American art history by being integrated into the museum. So you have these sites that begin to pop up in a large part, you know, post-1965, post-Watts Rebellion as a way to 
you know, kind of ameliorate the reasons why people are protesting. So you have, well, Watts Tower actually is slightly different in that it begins at least to be noted as a landmark at that point, an important landmark. It has a little school there. And somebody like Neural Purifoy, who is the first director of that space, who's also trained as a social worker, you know, sees art as a way to really help communities, right? Art is a way to let people have outlets for their creativity. And that's super important. You keep people out of mischief or whatever. But you also give them something to think about, right? You give them creative outlets in their community. So that's certainly what people wanted to do in that case, in Noah Purifoy's case. You know, then you have galleries. 1967 is the Brockman Gallery, started by Dale and Alonzo Davis, two brothers who are artists. And, you know, they realize, you know, they do. I, I love that part of the book in some ways because, well, I love the whole book myself, I have to say, but <laughs> I, I like that. I love this part where they are, you know, take off in 1966 in a VW bug on a listening tour, right? To, to go a listening and looking tour to see what African-American artists are up to. And I just, you know, so much of this book for me is visual. I love these stories. I envision, you know, every time I read that part, I see the, you know, the, the car riding across <laughs> these things. And at the end of that tour, they say, you know, or somewhere in the middle of the tour, they talk about, hey, you know what, we can open our own space. And it's open for like 22, 23 years, much longer than Ferris, but we don't know about it, which is is the amazing part. Suzanne Jackson does the same thing. You know, she's somebody who's basically grown up in Alaska. She comes, you know, to the Bay Area, then she comes to L.A., and she says, hey, you know, I'm I'm going to uh, start something because... My friends are not able to show. And her, her gallery is also, you know, interracial. She's, the first show she has, has, I think, two white artists and a black artist. She shows consistently, you know, all different kinds of people, you know, craft as well as, quote unquote, fine art. I think Brockman also is also very multicultural in its way. It shows Asian artists, Latino artists over time. It has an a non-profit wing at a certain point. And then, you know, you have the amazing Samela Lewis who just does everything. You know, she's already a PhD and a college professor for many years. She comes to LA. She, she starts working at LACMA. She doesn't really like what's going on. You know, her ideas are, are not for her being adopted quickly enough for her. So she decides to, she starts, I think, three galleries. She starts a museum. She starts a magazine that's still in print. The museum is still around. She does three films. She starts, uh, she writes several books. I mean, and she's working for most of this full time as an academic while doing all these things. So I'm just amazed at what people did when they set their mind to it and what they could do and and how they just they never gave up on the idea that this was their time and they were going to do this not only for themselves they were going to show their own work but they were also going to show primarily their friends you know primarily their community and also Samela Lewis for years also 
did work with the U.S. prison system as well and, and gave her magazines, you know, that were left over back issues that were not sold to prisons. So just quite amazing what what people were able to accomplish. And, and I don't think, you know, people would say, oh, you know, that's what happened back then. I think people do it now. You know, people are using other ways, you know, in fact, it's, I don't want to say it's easier, but it, it's different. You know, you have, we have email, we have blogs, we have podcasts, we have all these things that can go out to a lot of people. And I do think young artists are taking advantage of that and are still, you know, at this moment also workingly and continue these traditions that these artists used in L.A. at that time. But But I've always been impressed with what those L.A. artists were able to accomplish and still make their own work. All of these people, not one of them wasn't an artist. They were all artists. And also what was impressive is how they were able to impact the mainstream culture, particularly at LACMA, you know, the kind of inroads that artists and also black security guards made at an institution like LACMA in the 60s and 70s was pretty impressive. And and these days, LACMA has it on their website. You know, they have all the great photos of the black security guards that that helped change that culture. I mean, you know, today we walk in any museum you want, and you still see so many of the guards being African-American or black people of the diaspora. And we still think about, you know, how that culture in LA was changed by by those people you can still see in these institutions today or not exactly those people but the inheritors of those same jobs one, one of the great reasons for museums to be at least partially publicly funded is it forces them to be responsive to more of their communities and LACMA you know I think the current percentage is roughly two-thirds one-third uh, two-thirds public funding on an, on, an, on an annual basis. Another of the themes in the book is migration stories and how important migration, individual migration stories and familial m- migration stories were to African-American artists in LA and then to their work. And a, a favorite thing of mine in the book that pops up again and again is how you tell those migration stories and explained how migration and family history made its way into the work of a number of the different artists you discuss. And one of the best is the story of an artist we haven't mentioned much. So maybe his family story would be a good one for me to ask you to tell and connect to his art making, and that's John Outerbridge. Outerbridge is another important person who has a profile like like so many people of his generation. He's a Korean War veteran. He gets the GI Bill, and he goes to art school. And uh, he's already making art. And part of his art making practice prior to studies is based in his upbringing in North Carolina and his upbringing really around what I would call, you know, vernacular, black vernacular traditions, what people would, you know, call, you know, the kind of folk art traditions, untrained traditions that. I argue in the book, go back to Africa, but certainly their makeup is from the South. You know, how people create yard art, right? And, and insta- what we would now call installations. And I think it's, it's quite interesting that, you know, people are actually looking, uh, I, I guess for the last few years, this kind of push to 
break down the boundaries between folk art, if you will, and fine art and the kind of untrained artists and the highly trained artist is, is afoot again. And he's really inspired by vernacular traditions of the South in his work, in the type of, uh, the way he constructs it from from rags, from found objects. Again, this resonates with assemblage. So it's it's part of what becomes a quote-unquote mainstream style, but it's actually, for him, based in, in things that he saw growing up, the way black people actually had to make do in their lives with cast-offs and, and, and second-hand things and, and repurposing them. And so he's really inspired by that, brings it into his work, is also later a director of the Watts Towers Art Center in like 75. And, and before that, really bringing these for for a while, I guess in the late 60s into the 70s, his work is really also about, like Purifoy's, and he's inspired by Purifoy, really explaining these ways of making to young people as a way to inspire them and working with found objects, working with building art centers and and things like that in, in Compton and elsewhere as part of a practice that combines a kind of vernacular making, assemblage aesthetic, but also makes things that are functional. That is something that, you know, he learned from, from the South. When and even through whom does performance become important to black artists in L.A. in the 70s? And, and I guess why then? Well, certainly African-American artists are like they're Americans. You know, they're influenced by styles and and practices in Western art traditions. You know, we see this with assemblage. You know, they're certainly working in that. And then the same can be said with performance. I mean, the way I narrate the book from a kind of more didactic to virtual space, a more strict didacticism and representation in Charles White to somebody like a Marin Hassinger and Sangin and Goody, it really follows what's going on in certainly in American art at this time period. But the other part of that story is, for instance, Sangin and Goody and Marin Hassinger are both trained as dancers, and particularly Marin Hassinger, really trained as a dancer, goes to Bennington College because she wants to major in dance and they tell her automatically, you know, nope, you can't, you don't rate, even though she's been taking dance all her life. And she has a great quote, something like, why was I supposed to be so good at three-dimensional things like sculpture when I had just picked up a piece of clay? She never stops dancing. She goes on to graduate school and she's going to UCLA and they don't let her into the sculpture program. <laughs> but they let her into fiber because that's what women are, are doing, right? So you have Magdalena Bakanovich, you know, big at that time. And so she goes into that. And, and then she ends up finding this confluence of, you know, the wire rope and its ideas of movement and gesture that, that bring her back into, that kind of bring back movement into her work and then open the way really for her to start performing and then it's okay that you're not a dancer you could be a performance artist and so even some of the the early works that she's doing the performances she's doing with Sengen and Goody and the performances she's doing with her own sculpture you know can become part of performance rather than concert dance and so performance really allows people who have been trained as dancers but really shut out 
of what is a highly specialized field and 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 because it's re- based on bodies certainly african americans are going to be cut out and, and you know of course there's other great writing by you know alvin ailey's writing about this and and others about just the discrimination in in the dance world. I mean, it's not until this century we get Misty Copeland. We can celebrate Misty Copeland, Misty Copeland as a, a prima ballerina, right? And you know, we're in the 21st century already. It comes through because of sculpture, right? Because of that kind of three dimensionality that suggests movement, whether it's you know something that is kind of a more not solid, but kind of known material in some ways, like the steel that Marin Hassinger is working with, or it's something more multimedia like Sengen Nguyen's pantyhose and sand, or David Hammond's hair sculptures, right, that he does on beaches and elsewhere. Or even the way he activates his body to make two-dimensional work. Right, right. Certainly it comes from that. But as he even moves away from that, to take the body not just as a printing plate, but as an actual object that exists in the world in the same way as a sculptural object. As an aside for California listeners, on Tuesday, May 23rd, the California African American Museum will be hosting an evening event on black performance in in contemporary art. We'll have a link to that on manpodcast.com. Two more things. A a kind of, I don't know, semi-stealth presence throughout the book is the critic who presided over the LA Times for many of the years in your book, William Wilson. What did you end up either learning or deciding, whatever the right phrase would be, about his approach to the artists and communities about which you wrote? You know, William Wilson is not different from the majority of the critics writing for mainstream media at the time. Hilton Kramer. Across the country. Right. Yeah. Is, is another certainly probably well more well-known example only becomes because Hilton Kramer writes, writes for the New York Times and William Wilson writes for the LA Times. His reviews could be caustic, but then, you know, sometimes he, I think over time you actually see his education which I valued, you know, like he reviews Samela Lewis's book in 1969, Black Artists on Art, and actually thinks, you know, there's something to this. He starts to get it in some ways, whereas I think earlier on he had problems with as things changed, you know, and and his kind of reactions in reviewing are actually pretty honest in terms of, I think, how people were thinking about changes in art in media, in the role of politics, in the role of certainly gender, you know, because he he has the same reactions to the work of women artists as well. So, but but I found it, you know, fascinating, but not different from anything else really around the country. I, I often tell my my students, you know, in reading criticism, art criticism from the 60s and 70s, as it applies to African-Americans or black artists, they'll be shocked. People would never say this anymore. The type of things people would say that are just patently racist, I would say, but also, you know, just thoughtless and really just from lack of knowledge about these histories. And I think that's what, you know, these artists were so good at bringing our attention to, right? That people have to know these histories. They knew how critics were writing about their work and others. And they realized that it came from 
not having any knowledge about how different histories and experiences can change the way people make work. And different things are important for people. I think one of the the takeaways from that for me also is that history is so important to artists up to this period. I mean, as I quote Maren Hassinger in the book, she says, we were all from the South, you know, because you just had to go back one generation or not at all. You were the one like John Otterbridge who, who left North Carolina or like Noah Purifoy. So I think part of it was that, that there were different histories and different situations that they were addressing and that there wasn't one kind of monologic view of, of what could be addressed in art and, and things were, were changing at that time that kind of opened up what the content and feel of art could be, even if you are using the same styles, even if you are doing performance, even if you are using assemblage, that you have different stories to tell through this. And people are starting to, to understand that. And I think for the most part, it's not that these critics were racist in and of themselves or segregationists necessarily. It's that this was what art history was, and and they didn't know any other things. And even you know when I started teach, when I started going to school, this is in the late seventies. You know, I had to make all this up myself from, in many ways using something like Samella Lewis's book, Art African American, published in nineteen seventy eight. David Driscoll's Two Centuries of Black American Art. These were my types of H.W. Uh, Jansen books when I started thinking about these artists back in the day. Those were the things that I had. One of them is a catalog. One of them is a, a book. And both of them had just come out at that time. So you can imagine people who are writing in the 60s and 70s. They don't have any uh, context really for what they're looking at. And if they're looking at it without knowing different histories, they kind of miss a lot. I mean, I I also tell my students, you know, like, hey, you know, sometimes people couldn't go to museums. Catlett has a great narrative about taking people in New Orleans, her college students at Dillard, to go see a Picasso show. And she had to go on a special day because... New Orleans, now New Orleans uh, Museum of Art is in a park called City Park, and the City Park was off limits to black people. So she had to get a special bus, bus people to the door so they didn't step on the park, right? Be illegal. And they're seeing a Picasso show with Guernica in it. And people are, you know, this is a black school, and they're, it's a historically black college, and uh, they're running around looking at these works, and... Um, she says at the end of her piece, none of them had ever been to a museum. I mean, how do you make art if you've never gone and seen work? Jack Witten tells great versions of that story in Birmingham. Right, exactly. You're getting secondhand books. You're getting magazines of which probably pieces are cut out. How do you learn? If you're in the Western tradition and you're learning about that tradition, how do you learn about it if you're kept from those things? So I think the ability to have access to so many materials, and it changes what you're making and what you think about. Well, finally, as I understand it, you curated the 2011 Hammer exhibition, Now Dig This, Art in Black, Los Angeles, 1960 to 1980, after you'd started researching this book, South of Pico. 
even though the order in which they ended up happening was was reversed. One way there's an obvious link between the two is the photograph of Sengen and Goody that's on the back cover of the Now Doubt of the Now Dig This catalog is on the front cover of South of, of Pico. Is there anything that you learned from doing the show, the exhibition that migrated in into the book? Anything that worked from the objects particularly into the book? The Getty opportunity, the opportunity to be part of Pacific Standard Time, to do the show at the Hammer, the type of funding and lead time we got for that show allowed me to expand my research, allowed me to actually go see collections that were not public. You're not necessarily going to walk into somebody's home to do research for a book a lot of times. You're not even going to get to go into the Whitney or the Met saying, you know, I want to look at this one piece in real time just to see it. You're going to wait for shows to come up and, and so on. So it allowed me to do more visual research. It also allowed me to actually collect archives that were then given to the Getty or became part of the Getty. It allowed me to do more oral histories. It allowed me to do symposia with people, with artists and scholarly interlocutors that then also went into the Getty. So it allowed me to expand my research, but it also allowed me to give back to the artist. It allowed me to collect images that I could give them new photography and high resolution scans of work. Their work became more visible. Their prices went up. I I didn't really think that would, uh, that wasn't why I did it, but it did happen. But some pieces, for instance, there's a, a Noah Purifoy untitled work that I had only seen in books in black and white reproduction. And I finally get to go see it at the Whitney and the piece is in color. It's larger than I would have imagined. It has color. It, it doesn't stand freestanding. It's a sculptural piece. It actually hangs on the wall. I mean, there's so many things that you get to learn by doing a show because you you have to have physical contact with every object. And so that really changed some of the things. It also changed, you know, then I didn't have to do, I could cut down the book that I was thinking about, right? I could just focus on these these nine stories as opposed to the 36 stories or 36 artists that are in Now Dig This. I mean, you know, most of these people who are in Now Dig This appear in some way or another in the book, but you know, there's not a, say, an extended section on John Riddle, for instance. So it actually worked out well because it allowed me to cover a lot more artists in different ways. It also allowed me to hire a lot of young people to write bios on artists, biographies, brief biographies on artists that didn't even have any. For instance, John Riddle, when we started researching him, he had just passed away, and the only research we could find, particularly online, was his obituary. So this allowed us to actually create a usable biography for him that people could have access to. He does have an extensive oral history at UCLA. Now it's downloadable. So that kind of research that we were able to give on the short term as a team, I think, was great. I'm sure I'm not the only person who will be keeping South of Pico next to Now Dig This, uh, the catalog for Now Dig This, on my on my bookshelves. Kelly Jones, thanks so much for speaking with Thank me. Thank you so much. I appreciate speaking with you, too, and I appreciate your interest in South of Pico. The National Museum of Art at Duke University presents... 
Nina Chanel Abney Royal Flush, the first solo exhibition in a museum for Abney, a 34-year-old artist from Chicago, who is identified by Vanity Fair magazine as one of the many artists championing the Black Lives Matter movement. The exhibition is a 10-year survey of about 30 of the artist's paintings, watercolors, and collages. Through her monumental paintings, Abney gives viewers the chance to take part in a meaningful conversation about issues of racial violence and social justice. She uses bold shapes and colors and the language of today's digital and celebrity cultures to take on controversial topics. She confronts those parts of human nature that seem easiest to ignore, prejudice, stereotypes, and biases. She has said that her work is, quote, easy to swallow, hard to digest. On view February 16th through July 16th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu slash abney. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Focus, Catherine Bernhardt, featuring vibrant and youthful paintings that hover between abstraction and figuration. The artist's subjects abound in popular and consumer culture and are depicted in a simplified, flat, gestural style that approaches a cartoonish quality, on view in Fort Worth through July 9th. Also, opening May 28th, Doug Aiken, Electric Earth, the first survey to comprehensively examine Aiken's experimentations across mediums and disciplines. Welcome back. My next guest is Shimon Addy. He has two new works on view at the St. Louis Art Museum, The Crossing, an eight-minute video installation that muses on the global refugee crisis via a group of gamblers playing roulette, and Lost in Space After Huck, a sculptural installation that uses Mark Twain's famous Huckleberry Finn story to give Americans an empathetic gateway into stories of migration and displacement. The two works are on view at the St. Louis Art Museum through June 25th. Shimon Addy, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's lovely to be here with you. These two works in St. Louis, the film The Crossing and the sculpture installation Lost in Space after Huck, both address the global refugee crisis and in particularly the sadly open question of American empathy for it. I know you've made work about displaced communities for years, really for decades, but can you talk us through your engagement with the refugee crisis and how and when you decided to address it in your work? Well, I, I do have a long arc or trajectory working with the issue of refugees beginning in the 90s when I created an underwater installation in Copenhagen dealing with refugees to that country at that time. And of course, like most Americans, my fa my family, while they weren't refugees, they were definitely, you know, they were immigrants and my grandparents and they were, they were uh, at least on my father's side, they were fleeing unfortunate circumstances elsewhere. So I, I, I suppose it's, it's maybe, you know, us artists, we, we make work about which engage issues that we, we most care about. And the, the, the notion of, you know, using contemporary art to give, to give form to the issues that, are, that go right to my sort of sense of being the foundation of my being a human being and, and my, my ethical sense or, or core is, has always driven my practice. I hope so. So it's, it's an issue that I've cared about for a long time. Was there any specific reason or impetus that when you had a joint residency between Washington University in St. Louis and the St. Louis Art Museum, it's a, a long-standing program by which an artist is in residency at WashU and, and has an exhibition related to it at, at SLAM. Was there any particular local or regional reason that you wanted to address the current refugee crisis with that show in St. Louis? 
It's it's a very good question. Uh, I need to pivot a little, just just a slightly, in terms of uh, the framing of Lost in Space after Huck. And, and I'm very happy to to see that one one that it sort of has multivalent interpretation, and one level of that it does include sort of uh, associations with the refugee crisis, and that and that is very important for me, and and very good to hear. I'm not sure that it was the central thing that I was thinking about when I was creating that particular piece. The issue of sort of marginalization, who's on the inside, who's on the outside, who's, you know, in, in, in the case of St. Louis, who, you know, or, or America, who's, who's an American and who's not. Those are all, you know, very important issues that I think a lot about. But I was also thinking locally in terms of the literary tradition of the St. Louis area and Mark Twain's iconic Huckleberry, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which I must have reread a couple of times while I was sort of musing, musing over the piece. That, because, of course, in high school, it was sort of an iconic work of literature. And I was thinking as sort of a, a literary lens onto American race relations in the late 19th century. And then, like many of my works, a big part of my sensibilities is, is I, I often conflate different time periods in one moment. And I was thinking about the present day. The museum, as you know, is, I don't know, it's about seven minutes from the Mississippi River, maybe even less, <laughs> depending on how fast you drive. And it's, 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 it's seven minutes also from Ferguson, Missouri. And I was reflecting not so much on the specifics of Ferguson per se, but but I was thinking about it, this is sort of a nationwide issue. I was thinking about how today we still haven't really resolved the issue of race in this country. So I was conflating those two slices of time together, but hopefully in a very poetic way and kind of with a very light touch that leaves enough oxygen in it for each person to have their own experience and interpretation. That's why I was glad that you, that you took it in the refugee direction, which makes total sense because it's, there's like a, a floating decontextualized sculpture of a raft that's floating in space. And, and indeed, I was thinking about that, but, but it, wasn't, it wasn't the initial driver, at least consciously it wasn't. You know, the big term today, and, and you know this probably more than, more than myself, is intersectionality, right? That, that's the term Okoron, and I, I'm sometimes a little bit of a latecomer. I, I, I only learned how, how common that term is used maybe uh, about six months ago. And I had a couple of art historian friends who came and looked at the piece and talked about its intersectionality with refugees, with uh, pol police community relations or, or first responder community relations, which is, which is a little more spacious of a way, I suppose, of describing it. So there's St. Louis, there's the local literary history, there's the national issues that we as a culture are struggling with, and then there's the desire to, to, to make magic and to not create a piece that so much has a message in it, because it really doesn't but to create a piece that is, that is hopefully large enough to, to be an opportunity for people to actually have an experience and a complex experience so that a lot of questions are raised without quick or, or, or easy answers. Even though much of my work is content-driven, very content-driven, I, I, I'm a strong believer in eye candy and things being beautiful and sort of visually uh, astonishing. And I try to create a, an experience of wonderment as well. 
so that my work hopefully functions with different layers that are sort of moving in different directions at the same time, sort of like eating sweet and sour food, I suppose. But it does, you know, it's interesting because the, the, the closer the piece was to completion, it did, you know, then, then it became more conscious to me about the Refugee Association, but it wasn't that conscious to me earlier on. I was thinking about the river, I was thinking about the history, I was thinking about the late 19th, conflating late 19th century with early 21st century. And this is what this is what we got, which is the lost in space. Well, I think that's why it worked so marvelously for me. I mean, one of the things that I found in it was that it is a a call for Americans to feel empathetic for the current global situation and then provides them a context in their own past that they might mine, including an, a, a book so accessible that it's read in or before high schools, you know, as a framework for that empathy. So, so between Lost in Space after Huck, which is the sculptural installation downstairs and the film The Crossing upstairs, which we'll get to in a moment. Did you at any point in conceiving putting them together in a, in a single show, as, as it were, Think of them as a specific call to empathy in a in a part of America that, you know, in the last six or eight months especially has been kind of associated with a lack thereof. Yes, because that's the kind of work that I that I create. It's you know it's it's very interesting to hear you say out loud the word empathy, which, you know, I don't know what your sense is, but sometimes I think that's a a, a, a term that's meant with a, that's 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 greeted with a fair amount of ambivalence in the contemporary art world. But for me, it's for me, it's central. And I, you know, I, I think that one of the ingredients of maybe creating works that stir empathy is to is to be quite recent in certain ways and to 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 not try to communicate a message, but again, to communicate an experience in which the viewer is, feels free in their engagement or confrontation with my work to come to their own conclusions. I don't actually think that I consciously intend, I mean, I, I don't, when I make a new work of art, I'm not thinking I, I want to engage issues of empathy. I think it's just sort of what I do because that's what, that's what I care about. But maybe when you put two works together in a show, there's a different opportunity to think about that strategically. It is really interesting that you that you bring mention the two together because Lost in Space, which is so locally inspired, St. Louis, the Mississippi River, the literary history there, the surrounding communities, etc., and then the Crossing, which is was which was a piece created with seven Syrian refugees who had just arrived in Europe. Many of most of them on rafts over the Mediterranean, which is absolutely ostensibly it's not local at all, right? It's many, many thousand miles away. So it is, so one's very, very local, one's international. And again, that's sort of, again, conflating the, the past with the present and the local with the, with the universal or the general. And, and that's what I was hoping to do. You mentioned the crossing. I described it in uh, the introduction, uh, so I won't read it, re-describe it here. But you mentioned the actors uh, are Syrian refugees. How did you find and enlist them in the project? And how early in the project did you realize that 
that's who the specific who you wanted to be in the in the film well first of all let me let me clarify one thing none of them were actors yeah i'm sorry i'm using the oh, term oh yeah the, and, 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 yeah participant but Partic- participant yeah, for, sounds right. patronizing so <laughs> for, no just, but just to say that they, they didn't have any performance experience uh, of, an, of any kind and finding them that in itself was really interesting i i, I was in europe the specifics don't really matter but i was in europe in terms of where and all of that. And I joined some, I started going to some grass, grassroots refugee organizations and would talk about how I wanted to do a piece and, and would describe a little, in very broad terms, a little bit what I wanted to do. And someone would say, oh, go talk to Noor over there. She studied graphic arts in Damascus. She might be, she's a bit creative. She might be open to doing something a little bit different that's not related to journalism or documentary uh but that's in a different genre and i i even went to and then i'd go talk to noor and then we'd make a date to meet one-on-one at a later time alone where i could describe to her more fully what what the project was about and i went to and this kind of went on and on like that and i then i went to i even went to some red cross refugee I guess, what would you call those dormitories or, or living quarters where refugees were housed? Uh, again, with, with sort of prior pre-invitations to go to and appointments that I made to go talk to this person and that person. And, you know, my father's family comes from Aleppo, which in a way was a little helpful in terms of breaking the ice. And I would describe to them what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was very, one at a time, I would say, listen, I have, I'm, the, I'm an artist from New York. Da, 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 da. I have this crazy idea. And I would describe to them this idea, you know, about the game of roulette and r- roulette being a, perhaps a, a, a metaphor for the refugee experience in terms of what are the forces of life and death that are inside of our control and outside of our control. Some of us, make it to our destination countries. Some people die in the Mediterranean on rafts. Some people are disappeared before they even have a chance to leave their their own country. And I kind of ran it by each of them because if they don't like the idea, there's no way I would have made this project. And I would describe it to them and I was quite nervous because if they don't like it, that artwork is not going to happen. And to my surprise, they liked it. They liked it a lot. In fact, they said, this is exact, this exactly describes what our experience has been. And so, you know, so they had to be open to, you know, I, I chose people who I heard were more open, to, you know, some, some person studied, some, one of them studied film, film in Aleppo, another studied graphic arts, as I mentioned, in Damascus. And they had different backgrounds, a, a bit more in the creative direction in Syria before they, they fled to Europe. You know, there was quite, there was a lot of back and forth. I mean, I've worked with fraught in quite fraught contexts many, many times. And so there was a, a whole process of getting their trust and, you know, re- reassuring them, you know, that that inf- because they weren't really used to like the contemporary art context. They weren't exposed to too much of that in Syria, even the ones who studied like graphic arts. So it took about I think I think it took me about two months to find the seven people who were in the film. Was there anything they told you about their experiences or in their feedback on your idea that made it into the piece? Yeah, there were, for example, I don't know if you remember this specifically, but there's a piece where a woman puts her chips on the number 15 
and, and, and we pause there for a moment. It's a little longer than you would expect. And that came from them. Uh, the Syrian revolution started on April 15th, 2011. And they, you know, you mentioned things that they told me. They spoke. I mean, they, they would open up and, and, and volunteer to me some of the horrific experiences they, they had been through. And from being tortured, you know, one guy had been tortured for seven days, 24 hours a day. Two of them had lost a parent. A parent had been kidnapped by the army and never to be seen again. And you know, that was obviously quite, it was hard, it was painful to listen to and, and, and quite uh, intense. And then we would, you know, go back to the art. And hey, sometimes would, that would just sort of happen, there'd be a back and forth in that way. But I left that up to them. I learned a long time ago that if people who've been traumatized, if you lead in any way that kind of conversation, it's, it's a kind of voyeurism. And so I, I'm, I, I never lead with those kinds of questions. I, I let it come from them if they want to talk about it. And they did. And they did in this piece sometimes. Not in the piece itself, but I mean as part of like, you know, just getting to know each other. Have any of them seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They saw it in Europe. I don't remember if all seven were at, were at the opening, but maybe five of them were. They, uh, they, well, they thought they looked incredibly beautiful, but they knew that already. Because even, <laughs> they do. Yeah, they, they knew that already. Because even during the filming, we had a whole film production set up there, so they would come off in between takes. We would sometimes call them over to the monitor and let them see what we had just filmed. They thought they looked beautiful. They were expecting a longer, one of, one of them anyway was expecting, but it's only eight minutes long. I, I thought it was going to be like a, like a two hour film. And it was funny. I, I was laughing about it with her because they were already, you know, they, 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 we had three very intense filming days, which were like 18 hour days, three in a row. This is after, this is after also some rehearsing. They had to rehearse to learn how to do those robotic movements in just the right speed and to keep the face blank and not to blink too much. So we had, we had, a, we had several rehearsals before the actual production, the filming. And I said to her, well, listen, you want, you want it to be an hour and a half or two hours long, then, then you would have had 30 filming days for that to happen. So, you know, I was trying to explain, you know, that for in, in an art context or contemporary art context, generally with video art, you know, oft, oftentimes shorter is better. Yes, but they did see it, and they were very happy with the result. It's a really intense eight minutes. I mean, it, it simultaneously feels longer and shorter than, than eight minutes because the emotional intensity of it is, is so so big. Last question. I, I totally get why roulette, but was that the only casino game or context you, you, you considered? Were there reasons that you ended up picking roulette between amongst a couple of things, or was it always roulette? Well... You know, I, I will, and, and again, I don't want to get too specific, but I'll just say that, it, I, you know, I received a commission from a European government to create a new work of art, and this is what I chose to do. And it was one of the European states that did have a history of gambling and the casino industry. There was a point in time when the casino industry was large within the economy. And so there was that kind of site specificity as well that I was responding to. And then the two coming together, just, it was so like they did, it just was an alignment that made complete sense to me. I did consider some other games. I, I think I did. I was, you know, I, vi I visited a couple of, I did actually visit a couple and I was, I was considering blackjack and 
there, there were some other ones, but there was something about the sort of the circularity of the roulette wheel. Like blackjack, for example, there's typically like a dealer, right, who's you're kind of facing. Now, true for roulette, there's sometimes a dealer at the end of the table, right? Not sometimes, but there usually is a dealer at the end of the table. But just you, it, just, it just was the one that just made the most sense. And also where it would help that using the roulette, a table, a roulette table and game as kind of a stage around which the refugees would cohere as a group. I, that was also part of it. But I think the, the the conceptual aspect in terms of, you know, what we what we can influence in our lives and what we have absolutely no influence or control over whatsoever. That was the central driver. But the, but those are, there were a few others, as I just mentioned. Shimon Addy, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you very much. It's been great to talk with you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.